Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Trailhead. My name is Aaron, and uh, I'm so glad to see all of you here today, especially if this is your first time with us. Welcome. We are really glad you're here. Uh, If this is your first time, in your bulletin, there's a card. It's a response card, and if you wouldn't mind filling that out, and you can drop it off on your way out at the connection point table. It's a black table over on this wall, and we have a gift for you. We're, We're just so glad that you've decided to join with us this morning. Uh, This morning, we're continuing a series called I Am, about the different things that Jesus said about himself. A lot of people throughout history have said a lot of things about Jesus, but we thought that it would be worthwhile and beneficial for us to take a stop, uh, to take a moment, and to see what did Jesus say about himself. So this morning, we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 6, and I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, uh, in front of you, in the chair, underneath the chair in front of you, you'll find a Bible, and you can look there, and if you use that Bible, it's on page 891. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. you we would love for you to take that home, um, to read that yourself, to look back over this passage, because it's a pretty deep passage, what we're going to read today. We're not going to have time to, to cover everything that Jesus says here. So I would just love it if you took it home and read this yourself, and, and let God speak to you through his word. If you would... Follow along with me. I'm going to read in the book of John, chapter 6, starting in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The word of the Lord. So as we look at this passage this morning and we look at what Jesus said when he said, I am the bread of life, uh, I think it's interesting to note this is actually one of the most controversial, controversial things Jesus ever said. So for us looking at this today, it, it seems pretty mild, like not that big of a deal. I mean, he's using a metaphor. What's so, what's so crazy about this? But what we have to understand, when Jesus said this, and we're going to see later on, 99% of the people who were following him left in a single day because of this Statement. What is it about this statement that is so scandalous that he would go from over 5,000 people following him down to only a handful? As we look at this and as we ask ourselves, who is Jesus? And we're going to try to take him on his own terms and see what he said about himself. But as we say, who is Jesus? I think it's important for all of us up front to admit that all of us have some ideas about who Jesus is. All of us have some, some assumptions some expectations. All of us have some beliefs about Jesus. Even if, even if you've never been to church before, 
even if this is the first time you've ever been in church or, or the first time in a really long time that you've ever been in church, you have ideas, you have beliefs about Jesus. There are certain things that you expect when you think about him. Even people who, who don't really believe in Jesus have beliefs about Jesus. Maybe even if your beliefs are that Jesus wasn't even a real historical person, he's just a mythical figure, that's an idea, that's an assumption. And so with all those assumptions, with all those expectations we have, sometimes it can be hard to kind of cut through our past, cut through the things that have been piled on us in the past, and kind of look at it with fresh eyes. Those of us who have gone through and, and like I grew up in church. And so a lot of my expectations and my understanding come from that background. Now I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. In some ways that might even be a negative thing. See, I had, the, I had this pattern I used to go through, kind of my expectation for Jesus. When I was in college, I had this, this sort of cycle in my life where I, I lived my life in such a way that I, I was living for myself completely and totally selfishly doing whatever I wanted to do. I had no, no sense that I needed to have certain sort of morals or religious conduct or anything like that. I, I just lived however I wanted to live. Some of the things I did in doing that had negative consequences. And so what I would do, what would happen is I would start to feel kind of the weight of those negative consequences bearing down on me or even just the impending possibility of those negative consequences catching up with me. And so then when that started to happen, I, I would switch modes and I would go into this sort of religious mode and I'd start praying like crazy. God, please, please, please help me out here. God, this bad thing's going to happen because of everything I've been doing. Please, please don't let it happen. Please rescue me. Please change what's going on. And, and I promise. And so then I would get into this bargaining. I promise God, if you fix this, if you prevent this from happening, I promise I will change. I will start going back to church. I'll start praying more. I'll, I'll, I'll even read my Bible. I might even give some money maybe. Um, but please, please help me out, please. I promise, promise, promise. And then I'll never, ever, ever do it again. I promise, please, please bail me out. And then as time went on and either I avoided the circumstances, like the, the consequences never came or they weren't as bad as I had expected them to be, and then I'd just go back to how I was, go back to doing the exact same thing until it started creeping up on me again. And then I'd go back into my mode. Please, please, God, please bail me out. Please, I promise, I promise. This time, I promise. It was just this cycle I went through over and over again. This idea that I kind of like could, boy, it, it sounds bad to say it, but it's the truth that I could like kind of manipulate God by making these promises, by begging him to get him to give me what I wanted. A lot of us do that. A lot of us, our ideas about God, about Jesus, about how he should interact with us, they boil down to really more of an idea, almost like of a karma, kind of a superstition. If I do these good things, then he'll do this good thing for me. And if I do these bad things, then I have to do some more good things to make up for the bad things and try to balance it out. And, and in the end, as long as I'm doing more good than bad and, and I work out that whole situation, then God has to and those of us who have been in church before, we even have this way of going to the Bible and trying to find scriptures that are like, oh God, see, you said it right here. I gotcha. You gotta do this because here's what you said. And I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna hold you to this. I did my thing, now you do your thing. 
the problem with that, I mean, on a very, very practical level, the problem with that is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I mean, you can do and do and do all the right things and your circumstances in life never change. Your problems don't just go away. And when that happens and when you're trying and you're trying and you're trying and it's not changing, you start to get frustrated. I start to get frustrated. And when we start to get frustrated in that way, there's one of two directions we can go in. A, we look at it and we say, this isn't working. And so we go, I I must be doing it wrong. I need to try harder. I need to take a different route. I'm not praying the right words or I'm not doing the right good deeds. I'm not serving the right social cause. I'm not whatever. I haven't figured out the secret. There's some kind of like a, a secret pin number on the God ATM and I need the blessings and I got to figure out the code. And so you just keep trying harder and harder and harder and you're exhausted and you're burnt out, but you just keep trying and keep trying. And at a certain point, you're just like, I'm just going to give up because I'm not making it. Or you go in the, uh, the opposite direction. And instead of saying, it's my fault, I got to try harder. You go, this is God, what are you doing? Don't you love me? Don't you care about me? Don't you see how hard I'm trying? I'm doing all these things and you're not coming through. And you start to believe that God doesn't care about you. Or is there really even a God? And again, you're tempted to just turn around and walk away. Just push back. It's not working There's probably not even really a God. If there is, he's not involved. Either way, you're greatly frustrated. You're burnt out. And today, if you're here and you're in either of those camps, I want to tell you, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're going to look with me at this passage, at this statement Jesus made, because he is directly addressing those kinds of issues. Because in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking to a group of people who came to him with an expectation. They had an idea. They had a belief about who Jesus was and what he should do for them. And his answer to them is a key for us to understanding who he is and also why he came here to earth. So before we jump into this and really start breaking this down, I think we need to back up a little bit because there's some context to it. Because at the beginning of John chapter 6, John tells us about what had happened the day before. The day before, Jesus was preaching and there was a huge, huge crowd gathered to hear him, over 5,000 people. And they started getting hungry. Jesus preached for a long time and they didn't have any food. And they start looking around, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they find this tiny amount of food, like five loaves of bread, two fish. It's almost nothing. It's barely enough for Jesus and just like his core group to divide up among themselves. But Jesus miraculously takes that food and multiplies it out for everyone to eat. And not just like they got like the tiniest five thousandth of a bite. It says that he gave them so much, they all ate everything they needed until they were full and had leftovers. So many leftovers that his followers went through, picked up the leftovers and filled up 12 baskets of leftovers, having started with just this tiny amount of food. And everybody saw it. Everybody understood. Everybody was amazed. 
And so they started going after Jesus and they were like, he's amazing. He's incredible. They wanted to make him the king. And so he slips back and he gets away and he and his disciples go across the sea to this little town called Capernaum where there's a synagogue. And the people are looking all around and the next day they go and they find out he's in Capernaum and they track him down. And the next day they come to him and in verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? It's like, we've been looking for you. We've been looking all over the place. How'd you get away from us? You're over here. And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. In other words, you're not looking for me because I did this miracle and now you believe I'm God and you want to follow me forever. That's not it but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus looks at him and he says, you know what? That's great. You tracked me down. You found me. You know, I tried to get away, but you, you outsmarted me. You know, not really, but he says, you, you found me. That's great. But you didn't come here because you want to like worship me or anything like that. You came here because you're hungry. Okay. Let's be honest. You ate, you ate your fill. You were filled up. You liked it, it was good, and now you're back for more. It's kind of ironic that he uses the phrase, you ate your fill. Because the whole reason they're tracking him down is because they're no longer full. Follow with me on this. It doesn't matter how much food you eat, you always get hungry again, right? So Jesus did this amazing miracle. Everybody ate all that they wanted and in fact left some laying around because it was so much. They still got hungry again the next day. That's just true, isn't it? I mean, when you eat, stick with me. I know this is like, oh, come on, this is obvious, but stick with me because this is important. When you eat, you never eat enough to be full for the rest of your life, do you? Like there's no such thing as the perfect meal. It fills you up, you're good forever. In, uh, in St. Charles, right off of 270, there's this restaurant called Tecano's. It's a Brazilian grill. I don't know if anybody's ever been there. Um, it's awesome, okay? And let me explain to you. It, it, the food is really good, but it's not just the food. It's the way it's served. They, and maybe this is true of all Brazilian grills. This is the only one I've ever been to. So maybe this is a common thing, but I'd never been to a restaurant like this. They, they give you this weird little like stick. It's kind of like a, a column thing. And on one side, it's painted green. And on the other end, it's painted red, okay? And you set it on your table with the green end up. And these men come over with these like skewers of meat, all different kinds of meat, And they'll just cut you off a slice of it. And as long as you have the green sticking up, they keep bringing you more and more and more food. So like you you get it and they come over and they say, would you like some turkey or some bacon wrapped turkey? And you say, yes, I would. I would like some bacon wrapped turkey. And so they cut you off some and they walk away and you eat it. And you're like, man, that's good. And then they come back and they say, would you like some garlic Parmesan beef? And you say, how did you know? Yes, I would like some of that. And so they cut you off some of that and it's really good. And as long as it's green, they just keep coming up and keep coming up. And I'm sitting there and you'd probably be different than me, um, but I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm never turning this thing over because every time they come up, it's something different and they're all really, really good. And even if one of them wasn't that great, I'm like, well, the next one will be. Okay, so it's like, yeah, I'll try the barbecue roast chicken. Yeah, oh, you've got some pork? Absolutely. And, and you just keep eating and eating, and you can eat your fill. And then eventually, eventually, even I flip it over to the red, and I say, I'm full. I'm full, man. I have eaten so much food. And then I go home, 
And at the very longest, the next morning, I want to get up and make breakfast. It's bizarre. You would think after I ate that much food that I could go at least for like a week, right? It never happens. You're probably that way on Thanksgiving. You have this huge meal and then you're eating leftovers for dinner that night. You say to yourself, like, I could never eat another bite. Look, what's the point of all this? What does this have to do with anything I'm saying? It's this, that whatever your physical needs are, even though your physical needs may be met temporarily, you will have those same physical needs again. There is no way to eat your last final fulfilling meal. So transition this into the things that we go to Jesus for, the things that we want him to take care of, the things in our life that we find difficult. For most of us, it's not food, but it's relationships. And we've got this relationship problem where we're like, Jesus, fix my relationship, fix my relationship. And the truth is he can do it. You'll have problems again. And we go to him, we're like financially, oh, I'm in such a tough spot. Please bless me. Please, please help me out financially. And he does. We're going to get in financial problems again. Whatever it is, physical healing. Did you notice when Jesus was alive, he healed people miraculously. None of them are still alive today. Everyone that Jesus healed physically still died. All of our physical needs, we may have them filled temporarily. They will come back. So Jesus says this, he points this out to them. You're here because you want something from me. Even though I gave you something yesterday, you're back for more. But look what he says when he goes on in verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes. Like we said, food that you eat, but it goes away. You're hungry again. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. He introduces this new idea that was completely foreign to them. And they didn't understand what he was talking about, but he says, there is something, some kind of fulfillment that will last forever, which the son of man will give to you for on him, God, the father has set his seal. Now that gets their interest because they're coming to him and they're saying, Jesus, we've got this problem and and you fixed it yesterday. Will you fix it again? And Jesus comes and he says, listen, 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 you guys are looking for a temporary fix. I've got a permanent fix. I've got an ongoing solution. And suddenly they're like, whoa, we're intrigued. And so they said to him, verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? How can we earn this? You've got something permanent. We're all in. You've got something that's going to solve our problems. Tell us what to do. What's the formula? What, what, is, what is the answer? What is the solution? What is our step to earn this from you? How do we get this thing that you have? Tell us what to do. And then Jesus answers them in a way that throws them off. He says, this is the work of God. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And he says, it doesn't have anything to do with what you do. What I'm offering comes through faith. And again, they're so confused by this. So they said to him, verse 30, then what sign do you do 
that we may see and believe you. Okay, so we're not supposed to do something. We're going to believe you. Okay. Well, well, why should we believe you? Give us a sign. And, and the tone here starts to shift a little bit. So up till now, they've been coming to him. And they're like, give us, please, please. Now they're kind of like, hmm, we're not so sure about where this is going. And so they put in this little twist. What work do you perform? They ask. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, this is a little bit ironic. They, they give him a specific request. They're like, maybe we'll believe in you. Okay, you want us to believe in you? Maybe we will, if you can prove to us that we should. Why don't you give us a sign to prove to us that we should? Hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you give us exactly what we're asking you for? And then we'll believe in you. That sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? Again, we kind of do this sometimes. We go to God and we say, God, I need your help. I'll believe in you. I'll have faith in you if you, God, if you'll do this thing, if you'll, you'll heal this person or you'll help me out in this way, then I will believe in you. I will trust in you. The reference they make to manna is interesting because Jesus clearly would have understood this and everybody in the audience would have understood what manna was because manna was a big deal in the history of the Israelite nation. You see, after they had been in captivity for the, to the Egyptians for a long, long time, and when they broke free from captivity, when God led them out of Egypt, and then they went out following Moses into the, the wilderness for years and years, they were following him around in the wilderness. And almost right away after they left, they started, they, they felt like they were running out of food. And they went to Moses, the Israelites did, and they said, we need food. We need food. What are we going to do? We're going to starve. Let's go back to Egypt. Just take us back. At least there we had food. So Moses went and he prayed to God and God sent them food miraculously. In a very miraculous way, it was like this sort of bread substance that came down from heaven. They found it all over the ground when they woke up in the morning. They ate it. It tasted kind of like honey. They didn't understand what it was. So they started calling it, what is it? The Hebrew word for what is it was manna. So the name manna stuck. And they would refer to manna as this provision, this gift that came from God. They didn't do anything to work for it. It was just there. And every morning he gave it to them, but he only gave them enough for one day. So they could go, they could collect it, they could gather it up, they could eat their fill for that day. But if they tried to hoard it, if they tried to store more, if they doubted that the next day he might do it again, and so they tried to like store some back in their house the next day, and some of them did that. And then the next day, what they tried to set back was like infested with worms. It was moldy. It was gross. So God was trying to teach them every single day to rely on him to provide for them. And it was this huge, miraculous thing this awesome gift from God. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. It was totally and completely a miracle. And pretty soon, they started complaining about the manna too, that it wasn't good enough. So God, God had heard their cries and he provided for them in a miraculous way. And they were so amazed by it that they started complaining about it. Ironically, these same people in Jesus' time are asking him for a sign and they reference manna like, give us manna and we'll be satisfied and we'll believe in you. And he'd just done a miracle for them the day before. So in exactly the same way, they're saying, you've done some miracles, you've shown me some signs, 
but I need more. I need more. This one will fulfill me. If you do this thing, then I'll finally believe in you. It's a pretty ironic choice to ask him as a sign. They said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's, it's also ironic because they're still just trying to get the same thing. They still don't care about who Jesus is. They're not trying to get him to prove that he's God. They just want something. They want food. This might seem a little strange and maybe we can sit back and judge. Like, well, I wouldn't do that. Partly we have to understand the context, the time period. Okay, for them, food was a lot harder to come by than it is for us. Okay, for for the people following Jesus, they lived in an agricultural society. If they had food, they either grew it themselves, raised it themselves, or they had to know somebody else who did. It wasn't like they could just go to, to the grocery store. They couldn't just go to a restaurant and pick up some food. Food was much more of a valuable commodity. It was a very, very strong daily need in their lives. And so they're going to Jesus looking for him to fulfill this need, but not at all caring about him. I think I do that a lot too. I think I find myself, and as I was studying this this week especially, it really hit me. Like, I go to God for things. I go to God and I like, like I'll read books about prayer because I want to have a more effective way of praying. Or I'll, I'll study my Bible and I'm looking in my Bible. I'm studying and looking for ways that I can apply it to, to change things so that my relationships are better or so that my circumstances are better. Or I'll pray to God and ask him to change these different circumstances. Way, way separated from anything about him. Sometimes I'm kind of like a kid at a, at a birthday party. You ever been to a kid's birthday party? They've got all these presents and all the presents have name tags on them or a card. And all the kid wants is the present, right? And you've been to these and the parents are like, let's see who it's from. Read who it's, look, this one's from grandma. And the kid's like, whatever. I just want the present, right? Like, wait, wait, wait. You have to read the card. You know, they open up, they open up the card. They're reading the card, you know, and, and the kid's like, I, okay, let me open the present right? Because kids don't care about who's giving them the gift. They just want the gift, right? And we're kind of that way too. We don't really care about the God who is blessing us so much as we just want the blessing. Jesus said to them in verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. He's like, okay, you were going through and Open in your presence, you read the card wrong, okay? Moses didn't give you manna. They thought it was Moses. They thought that it was through Moses that they had been rescued. Through Moses, they'd been blessed. And so they were trying really hard to follow the laws of Moses. The law of Moses was huge to them. And Jesus says, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They totally missed the point of what Jesus said. Did you catch it? He said, the bread is he who comes down from heaven. He says, look, this is not about a gift or a blessing. It's about a person. And they go right back to give us the bread. We want the bread. We want the gift. And then Jesus says to them, here's our verse, verse 36. I am 
the bread of life. Look, this is, the, this is the shift here. This is the difference. This is what you're not understanding. They keep asking for bread. They keep asking for bread. He says, I'm the bread. He says, you're missing the point. Jesus is not just the gift giver. He's the gift. Jesus is not the one who fulfills our needs. He is the fulfillment to our needs. Jesus is not the path we go through to get what we want. Jesus is what we want. Jesus is what we need. He's not just the provider. He is the provision. But they go to him and they're like, give us bread, give us bread, give us bread. And he says, you're missing the point. I am the bread. But see, I'm not the kind of bread you're looking for. And that's our problem. And that's why we get hung up on that. And, and that's why this is so difficult for us. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean that we don't need to eat because we have Jesus? Does that mean that if we're Christians, we never have to deal with any physical problems at all? Does that mean if we believe in him, he'll take away all our concerns, all our cares, he'll change all our circumstances, and we're just happy all the time? Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying that if you believe in me, I'm all you need, you won't even notice everything else going around around you. You just kind of walk in this sort of sanctified air all the time, like walking on clouds and just, oh, everything's great. Not at all. Not at all. But the people he was talking to didn't understand him either. We're going to have to skip down a little bit. Like I said, there's so much in here. Go home, read this whole passage yourself. But I want to skip down to verse 41. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? Capernaum, the city they were in, Capernaum was probably the closest synagogue to Nazareth, the town that Jesus grew up in. So it's very, very likely that his parents, his family, and he, as a child and as a young man, had traveled to that synagogue many times. So he's talking to all these people, and many of them had seen him. They'd met him. They knew him as a little boy. They knew his mom and dad. So they're looking at him, and and he's saying he's the bread of life, and he came down from heaven, and they're like, no, you're not. You're Joe's kid. What are you talking about? The bread of life. Skip down again to verse 52. It says, then the Jews, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is he talking about? They started to almost take him literally. Is he asking us to cannibalize him? What's going on here? This is bizarre. This is strange. This is not going to solve our problems. Okay. This guy who's talking about coming from heaven and he's bread and he wants us to eat him. Like what? That's not going to fix things. But here's the deal. Jesus here is using a a rather extended and very, very strong metaphor. And we understand this. and, And I think probably to a certain extent, they understood him. But they just started getting hung up on it because the language was so strong. I mean, look in verse 53. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, 
You have no life in you. It's like he's pushing it, even further pushing it. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is really strong language. Why? I mean, come on, Jesus. Why not just say, hey, guys, I'm talking metaphorically here, okay? I'm saying I'm like bread, right? Okay. But no, he just keeps pushing it further and further, almost graphically. Why? Why make it so strong? I mean, part of it is the strength of it reinforces the idea. I'm the bread. I'm the one. I'm the one you need. But more than that, when he starts talking about his body and his blood, he starts to foreshadow what's going to be coming later on. He starts to give them clues as to how he will fulfill their needs. Obviously not through cannibalism of some sort, okay? But it would be through his body physically being destroyed. Through his blood physically pouring out of him. See, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about his crucifixion, which he knew from from the moment he was born, from before he was ever born. The Bible tells us from before time began, he knew that the plan was that the way he would fulfill our needs is through his own death. And only that sacrifice, that brutal sacrifice, Graphic sacrifice for us can satisfy our needs. First of all, because only through a blood sacrifice of a truly perfect, spotless human being, someone who was born and lived his entire life with no sin whatsoever, and only through his sacrifice could God's wrath be satisfied. Because we as humans broke the perfect world that God created. And our sin demands a payment. And God is perfectly just. He must have payment for our sin. And it is only through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that that payment can come. So all the things we try to do to make things better, to to tip the scales to make up for our bad stuff, can never rise to the level of a perfect sacrifice. So Jesus' body had to be broken and his blood had to be poured out for our sins. And we can only receive that forgiveness through him, through what he did. So when he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, Again, if we go back to what he said, he's talking about believing in him, trusting in him, putting our faith in him and in what he did and being a part of that sacrifice. But it's not just that. 
As far as satisfaction goes, his body, his, his blood, his crucifixion doesn't just satisfy God's wrath. It also is the only true path to satisfaction in this life. Full, lasting satisfaction. So there's a lot of ways that you can try to fix your problems. But like we said, none of them last. So if you're living like in guilt and in shame over what you've done or what's been done to you, and you can try to fix that, you can try to cover it up, you can try to medicate it or sleep it away. But it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that you can have true, full forgiveness. And so if you're striving in your life for success, for significance, for for feeling like you've made it, financially or being known. And so you will work and work and work to try to cover up that need in your life for significance. And you'll work so hard and you don't care who you hurt and you don't care what it takes. You will do whatever you can do, but you'll never be fully satisfied outside of the love of God that comes through the cross. If your biggest need is that you're living in loneliness. You feel so isolated. Even in a big family, you can feel alone. And you feel like no one truly understands you. No one truly cares about you. No one truly has time for you. And so you find yourself looking for relationships and you go through a series of of these relationships, looking and looking and looking for someone to satisfy that need to, to end the loneliness but only through the cross of Jesus Christ can you have a relationship with the God who made you and the God who loves you, and only then can you find true intimacy and truly know what it means to be known. Jesus is using very, very radical language here because it's through a radical encounter and a radical understanding of radical grace that our lives can be transformed, that our needs, our true deepest needs are met. So he said all this and he offended pretty much everybody. I mean, look in verse 60, it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That does not mean they didn't understand what he was saying. Maybe there was a part of that. But more than that, their problem was that they did understand what he was saying. They did understand that he was saying, I'm not here to fix your temporary needs. And I'm not here to just change your circumstances. And it's not going to come through just following some rules that you're going to get what I have. And they got that and they understood that he was talking about taking a gift, accepting a gift from God, a radical gift of grace. And they were like, I don't know if I can handle that. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? He says, if this is tripping you up, if this is bothering you, there's some other stuff that's going to be even harder down the road. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. The the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all means 
Look, you're looking at all of this from such a temporary earth right now perspective, and it's not going to work. You cannot understand this on your own terms. Jesus, uh, for Jesus knew from the beginning, verse, uh, verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now we don't know how many, but I think there might be a clue in verse 67. It says, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now it doesn't come right out and say this, but I think there's a possible suggestion there that he went from 5,000 yesterday to 12 today. That's a pretty high rate of turnover. Okay. If, if a public speaker today got up and went from 5,000 followers to 12, I don't think we'd call that a very successful message. Would you? Um, they were so scandalized by what he said that almost everyone left. Almost everybody turned around and walked away. But not everybody. Jesus turned to the 12 and said, do you want to go away as well? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. During Jesus' earthly ministry, there were 12 guys, and we often refer to them as the apostles. There were 12 guys who followed him everywhere. They were handpicked by him to be his followers. And so when he had this big crowd, and we can sometimes, the Bible uses the word disciples to describe all of the big crowd. And his big crowd of disciples, many or maybe most of them ran. They left, they walked away, but he turns and he's still got the 12 and they're still there. And so Jesus asks them, are you going to leave as well? Has this offended you as well? Look, it's turned everybody else away. Are you, are you cutting out now too? And Simon Peter, who often served as kind of a spokesman, he's the one who, who, who speaks up and he says, where else are we going to go? I like the image that, it's not that he's like, never, no way, we're with you. He says, um, we're kind of out of options. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if there was any other way, maybe, maybe we would leave. Because this is hard. Like, we don't have to pretend that what Jesus is saying here is something easy to accept. Oh, yeah, I got that. I got that down. This is difficult. But what Peter said, and what we probably need to realize is, it's also the only option when it comes to the idea of eternity. He says, you have the words of eternal life. And not just talking about, though it does involve what happens after we die, but it also involves there's more to our life than what we see. And there's more to our lives than our physical well-being. And Peter says, we could go a million other places to deal with our temporary needs. You could go a million other places to deal with the temporary needs that you have. Okay, if you're struggling financially, there's a million places besides church that you could go to to get help with finances. If you have health problems, there's a million other places that you can go to where you can get help 
physically with your health problems. If you're struggling relationally, there's a million other places you could go to to get really good relationship advice. But Peter looked and he heard what Jesus said. And he said, of all those million other places we could go to, you're the only one who has the words of eternal life. So if we're understanding this and if we're following this faithfully this morning, if we're truly understanding what Jesus is saying, then the odds are probably some of us in here should be offended. The odds are if we're really following what Jesus' line of thinking is here, then some of us are probably pushing back right now. We're probably saying in our heads, you know, I have some needs. I have some circumstances. I have some things pressing on me. And I came here to find out how Jesus could help me. I came here to find out how church could fix my problems. And if what you're telling me is he's not going to fix my problems, then I'm not all that interested. Just like the followers back then. If we're not hearing what we're wanting to hear, we're probably pushing back. But not all. Some of you, some of you this morning, you're intrigued. You want to know more. And maybe you came, maybe you came because you had a need that you were aware of. Maybe you knew that there was a problem in your life and maybe Jesus could fix it. And maybe that's why you came. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. Okay. Jesus didn't say when they came and said, hey, where were you? We've been looking for you. He didn't say, get away from me. Jesus meets you in your needs. But there are some of you who are intrigued because even though he's saying here, he's not going to meet your needs in the way you expect, you want to know, well, well, how is he? What does this look like? What does this mean? What, what does this grace idea look like? And you want to know more. And then there's some of you who, who believe. There's some of you who, because Jesus is speaking and when Jesus speaks in the Holy Spirit, will work in your heart and help you to understand and see things in a way that you never could on your own. And that's what he said. It's, it's, it's the spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. So without any help from yourself, there's some of you that God is speaking to you and you believe. And you say, I don't understand everything about this. But whatever it is that Jesus is saying, I want that. And you're ready to say what Peter said. You're ready to say that you have believed and you have come to know that he is the Holy One of God. When, uh, when my wife Joni and I were first married, it's about 10 years ago now. <clears throat> when we first got married, things were pretty rough. Um, we were just kids, just out of college. We moved from the small town that we grew up in to a, a much larger city. So we're living in a city we never lived in before. We have full-time jobs, careers for the first time in our lives. We weren't living with our parents anymore. We were living together for the first time. All these changes that we were not prepared for. And it was kind of explosive at first. I mean, we just did not get along. 
We're just fighting. Lots of stress, lots of pain, lots of really hurtful things being said and, and thrown back and forth. And, uh, and I came to this point where I was like, this, this has to, st- I got to fix this. I got to fix this. And so I'd grown up in church my whole life and, and I thought, maybe, maybe Jesus can fix this. Maybe Jesus can, can fix these problems in my marriage. So I started going to church. I started trying to pray. I started for the first time, really the first time in my life, honestly reading my Bible myself. And I was looking for and I was praying for and I was hoping for God to change my circumstances. If I'm going to be completely and totally honest, what I was looking for was for God to change Joni and make my marriage better through that. And then something, excuse me, something completely unexpected happened. Because the more I listened to the message of Jesus... And especially the more I read on my own what his words said. I started to see myself for who I really was. And I didn't like it. And what I'm describing here was not a pleasant experience for me because I started to see myself as much, much worse than I had considered myself before. I started to understand that the problems in my marriage were not because of Joni and they weren't because of the circumstances around us. They were because of me. I started to understand that there was even a bigger picture, that, that who I was and the things I had done didn't just impact my marriage, but that they were an offense actually against the God who created me. And I was broken. And in that brokenness and in that broken state, I started to understand something else. And the other thing I started to understand for the first time in my life, fully, truly understand, was what it means to say that God loved me so much That even in that state, even as I was as bad, as horrible, as awful as I was and honestly still am, that he would send his son to die for me. And that's what grace is. And when I understood grace truly for the first time in my life, it wrecked me even more but in a good way. In a way that that started to transform my heart. In a way that started to to change me. Not because it changed my circumstances around me. That that, that didn't just change. I went to God and and I was looking for him to fix my marriage. and, And look, he met me there. He didn't push me away. But he showed me there was something bigger. Something greater something more than that. And he didn't, you know, just fix my marriage. He started changing me. Over time, progressively, our marriage got better and better and better. 
But that became less and less and less of the point. Because the point was no longer, God, what can you do for me? It was, oh, my God, what you've already done for me. And it wasn't about what can I get from you, but he started to change me. So it was, how can I know you? I was looking for changes, for a fix, and instead I ran hard into the grace of God, and it was compelling. And it was life-changing. And I believe. And like Simon Peter said, I believe, and I have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And that's the invitation that Jesus still extends to us today. Just like he said back then that he was the bread of life, that those who come to him will have eternal life. He still offers that today. He still is the bread of life today. And all he asks is not for you to do anything, just to believe. We're going to put some questions up on the screen. Questions of reflection. As we think about who Jesus is, that he is the bread of life. I want you to think about these things and we'll give you some time to, to pray as you think through what ways you are looking for Jesus to fix your problems instead of seeking a relationship with him. We all do it. Look, we all do it all the time. We want our circumstances fixed. Where is that for you? How is that for you? But then on the opposite end of that, like Simon Peter, could, could you look truthfully at God? Uh, could you look truthfully at Jesus and say that I have believed and I have come to know that you are the Holy One of God? Do you believe that? And if so, how has that changed your heart? How have you seen that working in your life? In what ways is Jesus' radical grace transforming who you are? In a moment, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to have some time that you can spend silently in reflection, in prayer if you want to. Uh, In your bulletin, I mentioned earlier, there are response cards. If God's working in you and you'd like to share it with us, we'd encourage you to fill out this card. In a moment, we'll, we'll share communion. You can drop the card into one of the boxes on one of the communion tables. If there's something you'd like for us to pray for, look, God cares about your needs. He does. And we would love to pray with you and for you about them. So you can mark that on there. We as leaders of the church take these and pray over these every week. And if you'd like to know more, if you're intrigued by what Jesus is saying and you have questions and you'd like to talk with us, please write it down. We would love to to sit down, buy a cup of coffee and talk these things over. Can you say that you have believed and come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Let's, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you.
And God, we understand that you love us even though we do not deserve it. God, that you offer us the bread of life even though we have done nothing to earn it and there's nothing we can do to earn it. It is solely, completely, 100% through your grace. So God, I pray that you will once again fill our hearts with your love, with your grace, and help us to fall at your feet once again and say that you are enough, Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.